this is episode 162 of Alohomora for October 31st, 2015. Hey everyone, welcome to a Halloween just by coincidence episode of Alohomora. I'm Caleb Graves. I'm Allison Sigurd. And I'm Kat Miller. And our guest host today is none other than Dana. Hello, Dana. Thank you for joining us. Hi. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Tell our listeners a little bit about yourself. Um, well, I've been a lifelong Harry Potter fan, as I guess everybody else pretty much is as well. Um, grew up with the series. Um, currently go to med school. So a lot of work on my plate, but I use Harry Potter as an escape. That's great. Oh, med school. Well, good for you. Yep. What do you want to do with it? Uh, pediatrics. What house are you? I'm a Ravenclaw. Right. Oh. Yeah, very proud Ravenclaw. Perfect. So two lions, two eagles today. That works out. <laughs> we want to remind our listeners that this week we will be discussing Chapter 12 of Deathly Hallows, Magic is Might. But of course, before we jump into that chapter, we're going to recap some comments from last week's episode, which was on Chapter 11 of Deathly Hallows. Uh, we're going to jump right in here, and our first comment is from Stephanie. It's an audio boom. Let's have a listen. Hi, Lohamora. This is Stephanie. I have a crazy theory. I thought of it when I heard Michael talk about how Hermione told Harry to remember Dumbledore as he was and not spend all of his time trying to find out the truth about him. Do you think that it is possible that by this time Hermione has already caught on to Dumbledore's plan that Harry is a horcrux and has to die and that she's trying to keep him from finding out the truth just yet? I know it's a crazy thought, but I would love to hear what you guys think. Thanks. Oh, wow. I had not ever thought about this. Oh, this this that's that's pretty big if true. Yeah, I thought it was very interesting. I mean, we know Hermione is pretty perceptive, but I don't know. I feel like she would. I don't know. I feel like she couldn't talk to Harry. She couldn't keep that from Harry if she knew the ultimate plan. Yeah, it's a pretty big secret. I also think it's. It, I don't know if she would think of that. Um, obviously, it had never been done before. Dumbledore says it's kind of crazy that it even happened at all um so i don't know if hermione would even think that far into horcruxes to come to that conclusion i mean she does have the books though and she has read the process right yes but i don't know i don't think it's beyond her perception to figure it out um i think she's pretty clever but i just don't i don't see her keeping that from harry is it just movie canon where she says, you know, that she's suspected for a while? I think so. Mm, yeah, probably so. I think so, too. Because I don't remember, and I haven't seen this half of the movie in a long time. Right. I, I agree. I don't think she would be able to keep this from him, and I think that's also movie canon as well. Um, but man, if she if she did keep it from him, that would be huge. She would be real good if she could do that. <laughs> <laughs> what are the implications of that? Are there any... Would there be any fallout from her kind of keeping that from Harry? Or would things have changed if she had told him? I feel like she would have been more distant with him if she had known just to kind of almost separate herself from it if she knows that's going to happen. Mm. I wonder, too, even if she did suspect it, if she would truly believe that it's possible, even if it's something that she thought of and pondered if she would even believe it was plausible, you know, because she has yeah. a hard time with the, the unknown. 
Well, and that's why I think she wouldn't figure figure that out at all because yeah, nothing in the book I think would suggest that that's even possible. So true. Luna, maybe then. Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Well, our next comment here comes from Dora Nympha. It says, and this is on the discussion of Lupin, which was obviously, you know, pretty much the the uh, the topic of the week last week here. Uh, there was two sides to the coin in the discussion here, and this is the first side. Uh, Dora, Dora Nympha says, Lupin's not acting out of selfishness. He's not trying to save his own skin or run from responsibility. I think he genuinely believes that Tonks and the child and basically everyone ever is better off and safer without him. He still thinks this, and how could he not, after all these years? How Lupin's character pretty much embodies depression this way could be discussed in a 20,000-word essay. But the thing I want to point out right now is that the worst part of this is that he's absolutely justified in this. I think it was touched upon in the episode as well. His self-deprecation isn't only delusion, sadly. Apparently, everyone new he meets that learns about his lycanthropy can barely talk to him. That's extreme and dangerous. Getting validated in your self-hate is something that you just never forget, and he apparently gets this every step he takes. Considering this, he's holding up relatively well, actually. So, again, just the one side of the coin. Um, what do you guys think? Oh, man, this is like, I know it was discussed a lot last week, and so I don't want to, you know, go on a diatribe here. It's just like a really complex thing. For me, like, I see it as, I mean, he's definitely validated um, and feeling this, like, Feeling this way in general, um, there's enough to go f- to support it. There's a, certainly an element depression. I mean, if you just want to like a psychiatric like um, effect on him, but at the same time, for me, it's just when you become a parent, and obviously, I can't speak to this having not being a parent. Um, it, there's just like a different element for me, but that doesn't remove the fact that it's like I don't want to say mental condition to say it like in a, like that creates such like a extreme negative connotation but i feel like he is going to he has like some like emotional mental issues that don't go away necessarily just because he's a parent um but it is tough i don't know i definitely i definitely agree with you um caleb and i i think this this comment makes sense but i don't think like you're saying it necessarily excuses him from what he's trying to do um i definitely think this is what's going on in his head right now, but I still don't think that that kind of almost gives him a pass to run away from that. Um, well, it's okay. It's funny you say that. So I'm gonna, I'll read the next comment now, which is the other side of the coin. And um, there were many, many, many to choose from. I think this one kind of put it out there the best. It's from Pagers. It says it's a long one. While I truly do love Lupin, I think I disagree with the hosts. Harry was correct to say what he did. I think Lupin was acting like a coward here and deserved to be told it. Remember, this is not the first instance we see of Lupin acting a little cowardly because of his insecurities and disgust with his own nature. Something I think a lot of Harry Potter fans, including me, often forget about because it is only briefly glossed over in one chapter and then never mentioned again is Lupin's incredible cowardice during all of Prisoner of Azkaban. He knew for the entire book that Sirius was an animagus and completely believed that Sirius was a murderer determined to kill Harry. Yet even when Sirius begins breaking into Hogwarts, he never says a word to Dumbledore. Later in the book, after he realizes Sirius is innocent, he says that he had to try to convince himself that Sirius was using dark magic and not his animagus abilities. 
but he acknowledges that he really just didn't want to tell Dumbledore because he didn't want to admit to him that they had broken his trust during his Hogwarts days and let other students become anime guy for him. What's amazing about this is that he truly fully believed that his old friend's son Harry was in mortal danger, and he had information to help prevent it, and he kept his mouth shut. In a way, this is almost worse than leaving his pregnant wife. While I love Lupin and sympathize with his concerns in this chapter, I think Harry was right to acknowledge out loud that his insecurities don't get to excuse him from doing the right thing. It's possible that calling Lupin a coward was the only way to shock him into seeing changing his mind and going back to his wife and child. So I thought that that made a, you know, a very good point because I think we do tend to forget about Lupin's, um, all the information he held back in prisoner, which is important, I think. But I don't, I don't know if you can necessarily call that cowardly. I think that was almost more self-doubt than cowardice in that, uh, situation. Um, also Harry was 13 then versus 17. Exactly. I still think Harry was a little harsh, unnecessarily harsh. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think, <clears throat> I mean, I think Alice and I probably agree on this whole issue. Like that's, it's a complicated issue, but yeah. it doesn't justify Harry, the way Harry is dealing with it. But, and that also like, despite, you know, feeling on me feeling that Harry acted out from like a very emotional place, not in a like logical thought first place that doesn't take Definitely. away the fact that yes, it probably did have a good effect on Lupin going back to his wife and child, but that certainly wasn't Harry's first intent. I think we can all agree on that. Yeah. Yeah. I'm actually the opposite. And I agree with Pager's comment. I, I think that um, Harry was completely justified in saying to Lupin what he did. Harry is one of the only people probably in Lupin's life that knows what it's like to, you know, have his parents not around to be kind of not left behind on purpose, but, you know, orphaned. And yes, Harry, you know, reacted emotionally, but that's, that's who Harry is. And it would be a different story if he thought before he spoke, um, but you're, I mean, we did, it was a big discussion last week and we won't go into too much today, but um, I thought those were a lot of really great comments. There were over 350 comments on the main site this week, um, so it was very hard to choose the, you know, the three that I did. So definitely go over to alohamora.mugglenet.com and keep the conversation going because I don't think this Lupin topic is going away anytime soon. And speaking of Lupin, uh, we're going to move on to our podcast question of the week responses. And just a reminder of what that question was. What if three became four? What if Lupin had joined the trio in their quest? Would the trio have been forced to reveal Dumbledore's plans to Lupin? How would this have changed their course of action? And how would this have affected Tonks' relationship to Lupin, as well as how we as readers see him? So there were a lot of really great uh, comments this week. A lot of really great discussions, too, going on. Um, people going back and forth. So it's really hard to pick these as well. Um, but our first one comes from Who Do You Know Who's Lost a Buttock? who says, having Lupin there would have been a disaster. Lupin was their teacher, all of them. So far, the trio has operated on a somewhat even footing, trying to solve things as they come along with all of their combined ingenuity. They're equals tackling a problem together as a team, not always efficiently, but together. Uh, this commenter is a teacher, and I know that that power balance never really goes away, even when your students become adults. You can be friends with your students, but those patterns are there, and as Lupin was there, his voice would have carried uh, a little too much weight, a little too much authority, even if he didn't mean it to. 
They cannot have an adult around treating them consciously or unconsciously like children. They aren't children anymore, and they have to step up. Lupin would throw off the dynamic, influence their decisions, and probably try to advise them on so many things. Harry has to grapple with the Horcrux Hallow's decision and make that decision himself. I, I, so I don't know if Lupin would have been that, I don't know if that authority problem would have carried so much. I mean, he tries to make it clear in the beginning that he wouldn't be that in that role, um, that he would be like their protector. But, you know, maybe it would gradually shift and he would sort of like ease it into that authority role. But I don't know. I see Harry as so dominant in like carrying out this task. I'm That's not really what I would be concerned about, I don't think. Yeah, I think even when Lupin was their teacher back in third year, I, I never really saw him as a dominating personality. Um, and the fact that kind of his status in the Marauders as not necessarily a leader, but somebody who was just... I don't want to say just kind of there, but he was just kind of there and hung out with his friends and followed them. And, you know, he even lamented a few times that he should have stopped a couple things that they were doing. And so I feel like that would be the exact role he would play in this situation. Odd that it would be for, same as the Marauders, but yeah. What do you think, Dana? Um, No, I, having had these relationships, my mom's a elementary school principal, and so I'm in close contact with a lot of teachers I had growing up. And being an adult now, you still have that power dynamic there, even if you don't intend to have it. So I'm curious as well as if that would play a role, even if he didn't intend to, even if Harry is very dominant in what he wants to do and what his plan is, um, if Lupin would still have that power dynamic. And as a protector saying, maybe we shouldn't do this, maybe, you know, taking on that logical role and maybe how that would conflict with Hermione's logical role throughout the rest of the book. I do think that Lupin wouldn't act um, as rashly as the trio does at some points. Yeah. And, you know, when Harry is like, we should just do it tomorrow. I'm not sure Lupin would have been just kind of rolling with it. He probably would have tried to input his opinion significantly more than he lets on. But I do still think that ultimately Harry would have the final word. I mean, he would have to. He's the only... He's the only one who knows ex everything. I know Ron and Hermione know a lot, but Harry's the only one who knows everything. So, Well, our next comment comes from How Am I Going to Translate This, who offers what Lupin could have done um, to kind of split both ways. Um, and the comment says, What about a DADA crash course before the trio sets out to find the Horcruxes? Teach them the Patronus message thing. Help them figure out what they can do when they get into tight spots and practice operating with Ron. Some basic healing spells would come in handy, too. Lupin stays with them for some time, but returns to the Tonks' home for days or weeks, depending on what the trio is up to. He can keep quiet about their mission, as he did with the Marauders being, being Animagi, so telling him about the Horcruxes would not do any harm. He could be the one who gets them more information from places they cannot go to, but he can. He has done undercover missions. Let him come to help them when they get stuck with their search... He can inform them about what the Order is doing so they feel less isolated. Maybe he can find out about protective charms that keep the influence of the Horcrux locket from driving them crazy. He can bring them homemade food. Hiding for months is not necessary for Lupin, but he can take part in some things. Do we think this would have worked at all? Or I mean, <clears throat> they go in, you know, in and out of hiding so frequently that... It would be really hard for Lupin to pop in and out, I think. And also, 
much like um, when Sirius tells Harry not to use Hedwig because she's very visible mm-hmm. when they're sending letters back and forth. Um, I, I feel like somebody would notice if Lupin was popping in and out of places and uh, I don't know. It doesn't seem entirely plausible to me anyway. And I think with all of like the change in plans that they have, that everything just goes haywire from time to time, like trying to plan that and say like, hey, we'll meet back here. It just seems like implausible. And I mean, there's the little matter that Dumbledore specifically told Harry not to tell anybody about the Horcruxes. Yeah. I mean, McGonagall directly asks him about it, and he's significantly closer to McGonagall than he is Lupin. And when I say that, it's not, I mean, he's not really close to either of them, but if he was going to trust somebody, I feel like it would be McGonagall. And he doesn't even tell her. So I'm not sure Harry would ever even consider telling Lupin, no matter what happened. Yeah, I agree. All right, our next comment comes from Felix Scamander, who asks if, or well, who answers and asks, if Lupin had come, how would the locket have affected him? We know that Horcrux brain thrives on people who have or are in, or are in a state of high emotions. Lupin would have just abandoned his wife and her unborn child and be constantly worried about his slash her species and how long him, her, and his, her mother would survive Bellatrix, feeling betrayed about the trio not telling him about the mission. Um, maybe Ron, Ron's walking out would have been replaced by Lupin walking out. Then, would the trio have been more careful with the locket? Ron wouldn't have left. Uh, there would have been no Ron grieving, and hence more efficiency in looking for and destroying the Horcruxes, all leading to the accelerated fall of Lord Voldemort. Thoughts on that one? Mm. I don't know how the locket would have affected Lupin. Again, that would depend on Harry telling Lupin what it is and what's in it and would Lupin even be willing to touch it or go anywhere near it exactly yeah um I don't think so and uh, yeah the whole I don't know the whole Lupin going with them thing just throws me off I, I don't think it's a plausible solution ever in any situation <laughs> yeah it's hard for me to consider like that being the thing that would change Ron not leaving when I don't know. I still feel that would have happened because there still would have been like this Harry Hermione dynamic that Ron would have like read too much into. And Mm -hmm. that was the big motivation. That's true. Yeah. Lupin might have tried to talk sense into Ron if he sensed that something was going on. But I'm I'm still positive that it would have happened regardless. So would Lupin have, um, I guess, jumped more into a protective role if he did wear the locket and see its effects? Would he have been like more intrigued of like what kind of dark magic are we dealing with here? You know, this is way beyond, you know, the scope of a bunch of 17-year-olds. Like, how would that have affected him in that without knowing, you know, what a hor- that it was a horcrux and what was in it? That's a good question because I've always wondered where Lupin got his insane knowledge of the dark arts. If it's just kind of stuff from school and from, you know, reading or whatever because... You know, I'm not saying he's not qualified to be, you know, the Defense Against Dark Arts teacher, because obviously he was one of their best. But where where did that all come from? And would he even know about Horcruxes? And you're right. What what would he think about that? I'm not sure. I, I think it would have been actually kind of beneficial because I think he would have seen that whatever this was would have, was affecting them sooner than the trio sees it, because I don't I don't think they really think about it. <laughs> um 
because they're all wearing it and passing it around and they don't really understand it. So I think it could have been beneficial if, if Lupin had been there and seen that they're all being affected by it. And then they could have, I mean, stopped wearing it sooner. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's true. I suppose the signs were there early on, but they were preoccupied. Exactly. And maybe if Lupin was there and a little less preoccupied, he would have noticed. All right. And our last comment comes from Dora Nympha, who says, um, I know what would have happened. Maybe he wouldn't have gotten so out of practice on his dueling skills and wouldn't have died in the Battle of Hogwarts, which is an awful prospect if Tonks still dies because he would have had to raise Teddy knowing he wasted all that time he wasn't with Tonks that he's never going to get back. He wasn't there when Teddy was born, and Teddy is a metamorphomagus like his mom. Uh, that, as if that wouldn't have been painful. He would live with unbearable guilt for this wasted time and a constant living reminder in the form of their child. On the other hand, it kind of fits into Lupin's storyline, since this is what always happens to him. He loses those few people who do want to be around him. On the other hand, well, how do you say uh, I'm glad they both died without sounding cruel? But if we think about it, it's probably for the better. It could have been worse. I can deal with both of them dead as opposed to the alternative if it entails what I wrote above. Would he have really died, stayed alive, though? I mean, I mean, I guess, like, maybe his path in Hogwarts would have been different, but I don't know that he died because his dueling skills were out of practice. Well, that's that's what it said on Pottermore, is I think oh, where, where that's oh. coming from. Yeah, is part of the reason. Oh, that's not in the book, though, is it? Like, that's new from Pottermore. No. Okay. Yeah. I didn't remember that. Yeah, I that think it was part more. of his story, right? Okay. Uh-huh. I haven't read that in a long time. We recorded that whenever we were in London, but it's a long time yeah, ago. Yeah, years ago. Years um, ago yeah. yeah, so, okay. Well, then I'll let someone else fly. Think about this more. It's, you know, the, the trope of mom dying, dad regretting not being there, being reminded of mom by the kid is something that comes up, you know, often in literature. And usually the, the father kind of flies off the handle and you know runs away abandons the kid kills himself whatever or he sticks around and is super awesome mega dad to the kid and i would like to believe that lupin would be the former i mean the latter but i i'm not sure he's a dark soul and he's pretty depressed guy so i do feel like he probably Teddy would have ended up an orphan no matter what happened. So whether Lupin ran off, you know, Trent, you know, um, turned and then ran off or what? I don't know. Interesting. I, I think it would, I think it's, it would be really interesting to see what would have happened. And it's interesting that this commenter says that it would fit into Lupin's storyline, um, which is very sad that everyone who wants to be with him is, are the ones that die, but that is yeah. sad. Oh, sad Poor but true. Lupin. I mean, but that's not to like take away from the fact that people have died. But let's think about who he is. He lost Harry. I mean, um, James and and Sirius, obviously, right? But he didn't lose everyone around him, right? Well, we don't know what his. Do we know from his story? Like about wait, I can't remember about his parents. I'm sure that's in the Pottermore story too. I think. His mother died, and I now I'm trying to remember what happened to his dad. I think his dad either died or he just kind of, like, elected to distance himself a no, little hold bit. Hold on, we have to look it up now. Okay, so um, 
According to the Pottermore bio that we get on Lupin, it says the downfall of Voldemort the first time um, marked the beginning of a long stretch of loneliness and unhappiness for Remus. He had lost his free, three close friends, and when the Order disbanded, his previous comrades returned to busy lives with families. His mother was now dead. So we assume that she died sometime before that. And while Lyle, his father, was always delighted to see his son, Remus refused to endanger his father's peaceful existence by returning to live with him. So um, I'm not exactly sure that we know what happens to his dad, but I don't think Lupin ever sees him again. Well, those are our comments this week. Thank you all for answering. Um, there's some really great other ones. It was really hard to pick. So everyone go check those out on the main site at um, alohamara.mugglenet.com. All right, we're going to now move into this week's chapter discussion. Chapter 12. Level 1. Minister of Magic and Support Staff. Magic is might. (coughs) All right, so a quick summary of this chapter, Magic is Might. More visitors are appearing outside number 12 Grimwald Place, while Creature has turned over a new leaf within the house, serving all kinds of delightful food and good manners and everything you could ever hope for. Hogwarts has a staff shakeup. The trio plans to get into the ministry, but not before Harry gets another Voldemort vision. Finally, the three use Polyjuice Potion to disguise themselves and toilet their way into the Ministry of Magic. And once inside, it doesn't take long for them to run into the very person for whom they are searching. So the first big thing in this chapter is whenever um, they get a copy of the Daily Prophet and the headline that uh, Harry brings in, Severus Snape confirmed as Hogwarts headmaster. And the the reaction is so appropriate. They're both like, yes. no, no. <laughs> it's great. It's, uh, I didn't expect that, but in a way I kind of almost did. I remember thinking, oh, okay, yeah, sure. This makes sense. Yeah, I mean... It was really surprising um, for me. I don't know if I would have expected it. I I guess Hogwarts had already like left my brain for now because Harry, mm. Hermione, and Ron have. We know they're not going, and then it's just like a reminder that there's still problems going on at Hogwarts. Mm-hmm. Which which I which is also cute that they actually talk about missing the Hogwarts Express mm-hmm. in that moment. They're like, oh, it's so weird not to be on it. Yeah. I think I just wasn't expecting Snape to stay at Hogwarts. I I guess I, I always had a hard time uh, accepting that Snape really liked Hogwarts all that much, you know, that he was like, <laughs> yeah. that he was like connected to it. It almost felt like he was just there because it was convenient. So I guess I personally was surprised by this. Um, first time I read it because I was expecting Snape to be out and about doing death eatery things and <laughs> not not hanging out at school, you know. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think I had the same reaction as Allison. Um, you know, I didn't expect Snape to return to Hogwarts, but you know, then again, who else would take over that position where you know it's a familiar enough name that people might be okay with him being headmaster and sending their kids back in this time? But I don't know if you put like a death eater in that position, how would that have affected? You know, more people not going back to Hogwarts. Yeah, I mean, obviously we know this is juxtaposed with, um, I can't remember if it's in the previous chapter or in this chapter, when we find out that 
students are, it's mandatory to, I guess it would be in the same article. It's mandatory for the students to go to Hogwarts now. Mm-hmm. Um, we also get the, um, the staff announcements that, um, Electo and Amicus Caro will be teaching, um, Muggle studies and defense against dark arts respectively, although it's more dark arts rather than defense against the dark arts now. Um, but this discussion about Snape, I think is worth digging into a little bit more. I don't know if I've really thought about it enough myself before. Um, but how did this plan come along? Because when you think about when we see Snape at Hogwarts leave last time, he's running away um, as the murderer of, D- of Dumbledore. And that's what Wizarding Britain, uh, maybe not everyone, because this is not a widespread story. But, you know, the, the Order knows and there are people, you know, people are going to talk. It's going to get out that, you know, Snape was on that um, in the, on that tower. But obviously there's now suspicions that they're fabricating that Harry may be involved. But... Snape comes back all of a sudden. Um, what was the plan? Was this something that Voldemort planned um, after Dumbledore was out of the picture to install Snape there? Or was this something that Snape and Dumbledore planned all along and Snape's been orchestrating this whole time? I I would tend to believe the latter. And Same. I think that um, if Voldemort had his choice, he would probably put somebody in who was a little more vicious than Snape. And I think that he probably had to convince him to allow him to stay there. I I would agree with you up to the point that I don't think he would need to convince him. I think Snape is in Voldemort's good enough graces at this point that he can ask for pretty much anything. Well, that's what I mean. I think he would have to go to him and say, let me stay there. I'm more beneficial than okay. putting, you know, yeah. Amicus or Electo or whatever. So, And I think that also kind of, I think Voldemort would be okay with that so quickly because Snape seems to be is acting so much like I mean his closest follower so to have him in charge of Hogwarts which we know Voldemort really really wants pretty much extreme control over for several reasons I think he'd be perfectly happy to put him in there as quickly as possible Mm -hmm. And he probably thinks that Snape knows a few of Dumbledore's old secrets too yeah so it's probably um What's the opportune, I suppose, to have somebody like Snape in that position? Why do you think that he picks Snape as, like, you know, someone who's close to him to run Hogwarts rather than, like, use the Imperius curse on McGonagall or Flitwick like he does with the Ministry? And you notice in the Ministry, he doesn't put Yaxley in charge. He doesn't orchestrate Yaxley to be Minister for Magic. He uses the Imperius on Pius Thickness. I think because Voldemort has such a connection and respect for Hogwarts as, as like an institution itself. He kind of, he almost has this reverence for the school, for the castle, for its secrets, for its history, um, that he wants to put someone there that he knows will still follow him and do what he says, but also that isn't just, you know, that he doesn't have to really puppet around that will, that he can say, this school is important and Snape will say yes. So he'll act in that manner, you know? And I also think too, that the fact that Snape is a Slytherin house is important to Voldemort as well. Um, Am I making this up or is there, has it been a really long time since there's been like a Slytherin headmaster? I feel like I read that or I remember that from something. Probably no one since Phineas Nagellus. Yeah, that's what I I right. I feel like that was on Pottermore at one point. 
I think so too. Okay, so I, I feel like that's another connection for Voldemort is that Snape is um, a Slytherin, and that's important to him. Yeah, because does Voldemort think? Does he know that Snape isn't a pureblood? Oh, that could be another factor, though, as well. Right. I feel like um, he's got to know. Yeah, I think he. I think he has to. But I think that may be a reason he trusts him so much. Because he's like him. Yeah, although he won't admit it to himself or anybody yeah. else. Yeah. Fair point. We mentioned it briefly earlier, but I think it was funny that it's not Harry, Ron, and Hermione that talk about missing the Hogwarts Express. It's just Harry and Ron because they obviously together had a moment in book two that where they almost, well, they did miss the Hogwarts Express together. So I think that was an interesting choice by Joe um, to sort of bring that full circle. It's also... The first time they met was on the Hogwarts Express, and I think it's it's in book five where Harry reflects on he has always ridden the Hogwarts Express with Ron. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm looking something up. This is chapter 12, right? Yes. Oh, okay. Never mind. Chapter 12 in the first book is a mirror of Erised, so never mind. Okay. <laughs> I thought maybe there was some cool yeah, circle theory move, going on. Things move much no. quicker in that book. <laughs> yes, they do. Yeah. Yes, they do. <laughs> But um, Hermione return, returns to the two of them. Um, she had gone to fetch Phineas Nagellus's portrait, and she stuffs it in her ever-useful handbag, um, <laughs> remarking that, that bag. she's worried now that Snape may be using that um, two-way portrait to spy on them or to figure out that Harry is there. Um, <clears throat> but this is interesting, because what if she had not hidden the portrait away? Um, and I'm kind of taking a, a, an a step, maybe um, an extra step that Snape would have actually tried to communicate with them rather than just sort of observe them. Because I think if he would have observed them, he would not have alerted Voldemort. He wouldn't have told him. Um, but would have Snape, would Snape have tried to communicate with them and to try to explain himself what he was doing to Harry no. and others? No. Um, I think he has so much loathing for Harry still and knows that Harry will not listen to a word he says that he knows it. He doesn't want to do it. And even if he did want to do it, it wouldn't make any difference. Yeah. Harry, Harry's blood is boiling for Snape right now. Yeah. He wants to, you know, he said, or in a few chapters ago, let me see Snape <laughs> put me in front of that guy. And I think that if Snape had tried to reach out to them in any way, other than the way that he does, it would have been a bad situation. So, um, there was a, another line kind of in this this little moment that I really like as well. Um, it's on page 228, <clears throat> and it's Harry thinking about Snape sitting up in Dumbledore's office, and it says, um, The circular top tower room where Snape was no doubt sitting right now, in triumphant possession of Dumbledore's collection of delicate silver magic instruments, the stone pensive, the sorting hat, and unless it had been moved elsewhere... The Sword of Gryffindor. And that really stood out to me this time because Harry knows that it's missing. Oh. Because he was told that a few chapters ago. So, is that a clue? I feel like that is a very blatant clue to us that Snape has the sword. It definitely draws attention to the sword, you know, that it yeah. it reminds us how important it is. And I mean, it is kind of a hint. Yeah. That it's going to be important later. I think so. I mean, because there's no, he wouldn't even, I mean, he would think about it because he associates the sword with that office, but 
you know, Scrimgeour told him that it's missing. So, I don't know. It's just funny. It yeah. really stuck out at me this time. So then we get to learn more about their plan to get into the Ministry of Magic. Um, Harry comes back from reporting more on his ministry watching, and it's clear, it becomes clear. Um, it, we got pretty clear clues at the end of the last chapter, but now it's explicit that they are looking for Umbridge, um, but they have not seen her yet. Um, they're also, they're planning to, well, as they've been planning to get into the ministry, Harry suddenly out of the blue springs it on Ron and Hermione that he thinks that they should go the next day, um, which they aren't quite sure that they're that ready. Um, but the plan is to find Umbridge and to get to the locket. And there is a funny little exchange between Ron and Harry. Um, unless said Ron, she's found a way of opening it and she's now possessed speaking about the locket and Harry responds wouldn't make any difference to her she was so evil in the first place <laughs> which is great it's brilliant yeah <laughs> which is funny that Harry can always like puts umbrage in that box of evil almost in the same sense as he does Voldemort um when mm-hmm. she's no doubt a horrible person but there is a, like there's a distinction um and Harry just is always not unjustifiably because of what she's done to him, but there's a difference. Um, but the trio has been doing prepping for, for four weeks, um, which is interesting. I think it's really impressive um, because Harry is not always the most patient person. Obviously, as Hermione there, probably keeping him in check. But this is pretty, like, good invest, investigative work that they're doing and, like, careful planning when they know the stakes are high to get this uh, horcrux. Anyone else have thoughts on that? No, I mean, I think they they all have that mentality that they, you know, need to prep for it. And I agree that, you know, since it's such a big deal, this is, you know, the Horcrux, it's because of where it is. It's like a once they're done kind of thing. If they don't get it now, how else are they going to get it in the future? Um, but I kind of agree that, you know, they're just waiting around. They have to be careful with what they're doing um, while they're observing things. And so they're not really getting anywhere. So... How much more are you going to learn by a few more days of just watching everybody? Yeah, without actually being in the ministry and able to get into the ministry to see what's going on, it's it's all the prep in the world isn't going to prepare them for actually getting the locket. Yeah. Basically, the prep is just getting into the ministry and then flying by the seat of their pants, <laughs> which is the best that they could possibly do. I also so. think it's funny that when they consider going um, – each of them has like a reason for not wanting one of the others to go. Um, mm. One of them, bring, I think it's um, Ron brings up Hermione's muggle-born status. Um, and then they bring up, you know, Ron, um, it would blow his cover of being sick back at home. And then they bring up the idea that Harry is the most wanted person, so he shouldn't be there. Um, just kind of funny. There's like, there's a risk for all of them, um, you know, blowing their cover, um, just safety for what they are. Um They've all got something at stake here that they're all willing to sacrifice. I think it's important that Joe showed that for all three of them. Not just I Harry. agree. And, and, and I yeah. like that moment where they're all going through that and they're like, well, you shouldn't go and you shouldn't go. And it, it just, I, yeah, it, I like it. It's a good moment. I think it shows the Gryffindor in all of them where they're like, no, they all have a moment where they say, I'll go and I'll take care of this because it's too dangerous for you guys. And I don't know. I just like that. They're all very, willing to sacrifice themselves for the others and trying to keep the others to stay back. Um, and in this moment when they're getting ready to go and they're coming around that they down to go the next day, um, Harry gets another Voldemort vision and um, 
Hermione notices that Harry's, um, you know, bringing his hand to his forehead. Um, but Harry gets out of the room and heads to the bathroom. Um, and this time he sees Voldemort looking for Grigorovich, um, the other wand maker. Um, and Voldemort knocks on a door and a woman who seems to be enjoying her life. I think the, the line is like, she's smiling or she's laughing. She's somehow like enjoying whatever moment she was taken away from. Um, and Voldemort asks, um, about Grigorovich, but she says that he does, she, that Grigorovich does not live there and she doesn't know where he is. Um, but Voldemort kills her anyway. And this, the line that really strikes me every time, because it's clear that this moment has never left Harry and probably never will, um, is when, um, Hermione and Ron, um, confront him about it and, may, and they know what's going on. He says it was Cedric all over again, all over again. They were just there. Like this fact that mm. Cedric died just because he was in the wrong place at the wrong time. And Harry will always feel a sense of blame about that. And that, that guilt and just the sheer dumb luck of being in the wrong place at the wrong time is something that will always strike Harry. Yeah. I think that moment, because it was it was the first death Harry had seen, it was someone that he had come to respect, even probably be friends with. And, and I mean, he, it was a new kind of friendship. It just cuts him so deep that he thinks Cedric was his. And he fault. sees Thestrals afterwards. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes, <laughs> but I, I think Harry has always thought, to some extent, that was his fault, and he thinks this might, to some extent, be his fault because of the wand connection and because of what happened when he met mm. Voldemort. I never thought of that—the whole blame game that Harry likes to play. Um, so as mentioned, Hermione and Ron hear Harry scream out during the vision and Hermione goes in on Harry for not trying to block it out. Um, not using occlumency. Um, Harry says that it was no good. He was never going to get occlumency down and even suggests that it's helpful that he's having these visions because he knows what Voldemort is doing. <clears throat> and before we get to how Hermione deals with that, um, in a very poor way, um, is this something that Dumbledore ever considered, um, he obviously tried to get Harry to do occlumency, but was there a point that he thought maybe it is useful that Harry is having this connection and can see it? Obviously, there's some pa- there's history that it was not reliable because of what happened with Sirius. Um, and was that enough to make him think that there was just never going to be a way that it was useful for him? Hmm, that's tough because I think that if Dumbledore were around now and alive, that he would definitely um, still push Harry to learn, but he would also take the information that Harry is learning when he's not employing occlumency, and he would use it to his advantage. Um, It's kind of like, I always think of um, Gandalf and Pippin with the uh, plantier, plantier, however you say it, you know, when Gandalf is really, really, really mad at Pippin for touching it and using it, but then they, that useful information comes in significantly handy. And I feel like Dumbledore would react the same way. Yeah. I also think Dumbledore was a little bit more worried because at the point where this was happening before, Voldemort was using, was using this against Harry. He was, but in this case, like he, he would purposefully do this to Harry. But I think in this case, um, we find out later that this is more when Voldemort is absolutely losing control and is having 
such an emotional reaction to something that he can't block Harry out. So I think things have changed. And so, yeah, I think um, Dumbledore might be a little bit more on Harry's side at this point than he would have been in the past. He would at least take the information and oh, yeah. do something with definitely. it. Definitely, yeah. definitely. Still encourage Harry to not act on it or encourage the connection, but definitely take advantage of it when it did kind of seep through. Um, yeah, yeah. I agree. Yeah, that's what I tend to think, that you know, it would have been different in this situation had he been alive. Um, but as I mentioned, or as I alluded to, Hermione um, continuing off this semi-argument um, when Harry suggested it might be helpful. She blurts out that Harry might like having this special connection or relationship. And it was an interesting thing that she used the word relationship instead of just stopping with connection. Um, and Harry does not obviously take this well. Um, and then she immediately tries to um, backpedal on saying that, but Harry says that I'm going to use it. And um, I can't, I should have written this down. I can't remember if it was Ron or Hermione that says starts with Dumbledore, which is interesting because I think Dumbledore, Hermione, yeah. yeah, Hermione, because what we just, you know, discussed how Dumbledore may have thought about this. Um, but Harry interrupts her and says, forget Dumbledore. This is my choice. Nobody else's. Just really striking. Um, first, how Hermione sets it up as a relationship and then how Harry deals with it by saying, forget Dumbledore. He really has kind of like, stepped away maybe not completely maybe this is just like reactionary but i think it's pretty significant yeah i think this is the first time that harry makes a decision that goes against what dumbledore told him and i think that's a huge step in the decisions and what he'll end up doing for the rest of the book um and i think in some ways it's ultimately why he's able to do what he does is because he starts kind of making his own decisions about this rather than just following and i think the word relationship is really important and i think it, it's good that you pointed that out because i think harry and voldemort are definitely in some sort of screwed up relationship it's more than just a connection because relationships you know one person's actions affects the other person and they are continually affecting each other and changing the course of each other's path and lives and i think that that word relationship is the perfect description for the two of them because a relationship doesn't have to be romantic or a friendship. It can be anything really. Um, so they briefly consider that um, once they've all calmed down a little bit, um, what they think about the vision a little bit more and they consider that Voldemort is seeking out Gregorovich for an explanation about what happened between Harry and Voldemort's wands way back early in the book when they try to take off from Privet Drive Um and they consider maybe that's because all of Vander was of no help. And there's a, a small exchange between Harry and Hermione about um, Hermione thinks that it's not the wands that did it, um, that Harry um, is the one who did it. But Harry says, there's no way I could have done it because it just sort of happened. Um, but the conversation doesn't really get anywhere. Then they finally head off to the ministry on um, the next day. And um, we see the three people that they do different things to to get them away from the ministry. They first stun Mafalda Hopkirk, um, who Hermione uses to um, get a hair from and take um, the Polyjuice Potion. And I thought it was interesting that we don't see, I mean, I'm sure this happened, but we don't get the text on this, of the trio deliberating about what they're going to do to get um, into the ministry. And then once they decide they're going to disguise themselves, how to get the people away from the ministry. Um and how they justified attacking ministry workers, you know, seemingly innocent people, 
to get into the ministry. Um, I want to jump ahead just a little bit because the second person um, is Red Cattermole, who they use for Ron. And they use they don't stun him. They use um, a puking pastille to um, get him sent home because he's sick. Um, and then there's an exchange between Hermione and Ron. Hermione says that she would have rather stunned him, which I thought was interesting. And Ron says that multiple bodies would have looked suspicious. So Ron's concern isn't that they would have had to stun another person, but of how suspicious it would have looked to have multiple bodies. Personally, I would have never used a puking pastel because that is disgusting. <laughs> like he operates out of there and it says there's flying chunks of vomit. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, those are pretty much the most disgusting thing that the twins invented. Um, so I am totally with Hermione here. Just stun them. It's easier. Um, but I do understand the whole like pile of bodies thing, I guess. Yeah, I think I think Ron's right. And I, I think part of, though, what Hermione's worried about is if someone's not knocked out, there's the chance they could show back up. And especially because Cattermole was so insistent about going to work. Um, I think some of this might be coming from Hermione's worry that they'll be in the ministry and he'll show back up and ruin the whole plan, which she's already unsure about because she didn't feel prepared for it. And um, Mm -hmm. yeah. Which is valid. I mean, it's a totally valid fear. How long does stunning last? I don't know if we ever see an instance where someone just recovers from it naturally, right? I don't think Um, so. They might, but I feel like it can take a while depending on how, probably how well the spell was cast. Yeah, probably like everything else, right? The intent. Well, because Luna stuns people in book five in the uh, Department of Mysteries. But we yeah. don't think we know who it is and we don't know when they show back up. So, yeah. And it, well, in, in book four, um, Crouch Jr. stuns Crumb. Um, but then I, oh man, now I don't remember if someone wakes him up or if he wakes up by himself. Right. Yeah, I don't remember. So the final person that they use um, is uh, Runcorn for Harry, and they use a nosebleed nougat on him, um, which is another disgusting thing. Uh, not as gross as yeah. um, vomit, but ugh, blood, streaming bloody noses just can't. I just can't. Ugh. It's gross. <laughs> but anyway, they get rid of these people, and they get into the ministry via toilet. Uh, this this scene is in the movie, right? I'm not imagining yeah. It is. Yeah. yeah, it is. This is one of the better scenes in the movie, it's I great. think. great. Because in the book, they actually deal with this awkward situation pretty quickly. Um, like, they just go in, and they're like, oh, do we flush ourselves? Yep, seems like it. They step in, they flush, and they're in. But in the movie, there's, like, this awkward thing where they don't want to deal with it, and the people behind them are like, why are you taking so long? Let's go. Um, I thought they do a really good job of it. Yeah. Yeah, they just kind of get on with it. You're right, really quickly. They're like, oh, okay, we'll just go in the toilet. I mean, they go in... Uh, wizards are just gross. Yeah, who came up it comes with down this? To. Like, I don't understand. Who was like, this sounds like a great idea. Like, not, I don't know, some door that seems locked that will pop you somewhere. But they're like, let's let's take these toilets and let's use that to get all of our employees in. Like, who thought that was a good idea? I guess, like, the, the options are limited if you're having to, like, you need channels or, like, a way to get large amounts of people. I don't know. Yeah. 
weird. I wonder also, do we know, I'm taking the toilet thing a little too far, but I'm now more interested by it <laughs> as we talk about it. Does it say in the book, I can't remember what kind of building the toilet is in, or do we just see them go into a general thing that says gentlemen and ladies? Um, let's see. I'm on that page right now. Um, it says... They stepped out of the alleyway together. Fifty yards along the crowded pavement, there was a black spiked railing flanking two flights of steps, one labeled gentlemen, the other one ladies. So it's like underground. Yeah, it says, um, Harry and Ron joined a number of oddly dressed men descending into what appeared to be an ordinary underground public toilet tiled in grimy black and white. Okay. That's what I thought. Because, so my first time in the UK, I, or in England, I should specifically say, I was surprised that. Almost, and I don't know if this is the case, but all of the public toilets that I encountered cost money, um, which is just mm-hmm. not a thing in the United States. Um, so I wondered, like, are the if that's the case for this one, are they having to pay every time just to go to work? I think um, they have special coins, coins, though. Are. Yeah, that's what, I think that's implied that they're special coins that will get them oh, in there. You're right. So you're someone right. I like was thinking, right. Normal. I was I mean, thinking the special <laughs> coins were for something else, but that's totally what they're for. You're right. But the other question that that begs is that if this is like a normal public toilet, um, are people muggles using it or is it hidden? Yeah, like must be. Saint Mungo's. Yeah, it doesn't say. Still kind of gross. Yeah. I would imagine it would have to be like hidden or something, whether it's the coins that get you in, because if not, you know, you're disappearing into a toilet. Nobody's ever going to come out if you got muggles in there. That causes kind of problems in terms of like lines. That's true. That's true. Plus, it's gross. It's just nasty. (laughs) It is. But they finally get through the pipes and into the atrium, which is very different um, from the last time Harry was there. And I just, I want to read the description because I think it's just really captivating the way um, this horrible thing is written. But it says, Now a gigantic statue of black stone dominated the scene. It was rather frightening. This was a sculpture of a witch and a wizard sitting on ornately carved, carved thrones, looking down at the ministry workers toppling out of fireplaces below them. Engraved in foot-high letters at the base of the statue were the words, Magic is Might. And then a little farther down, it says, Harry looked more closely and realized that what he had thought were decoratively carved thrones were actually mounds of carved humans, hundreds and hundreds of naked bodies, men, women, and children, all with rather stupid, ugly faces twisted and pressed together to support the weight of the handsomely robed wizards. And then Hermione whispers, muggles, in their rightful place. Just awful. I just got goosebumps. Yeah. It's so, it's, it's pretty terrible. It's, it's pretty terrible. It's awful. Um, because, like, it's one thing to for the Death Eaters to have taken over the ministry and maybe this, like, subtle, like, not everyone really knows what's going on sort of way. But this is a pretty quick yeah. change for the death eaters to take over and to put in this very clear, this statue that has a very clear message. How, I mean, we know that Arthur doesn't want to leave his job because it's important for the order to have people at the ministry. But how are people just not quitting? They might not have any other option. It, or maybe they feel like it's safer to be there. Um I think we talked about this a little bit. I think last week um, with the with the the Muggle born reg- registration of just people being afraid to speak out because they don't know who they can trust. 
And so maybe they think, okay, if I stay here, keep my head down, just kind of keep going along, I'll be safer than doing anything else. Yeah, real movers and shakers. Yeah. Yeah, I get it. I, for, I forgot, actually, re- rereading this, that um, that in the book, the it's these thrones that are made out of um, people. Um, and I can't decide which I not like better, but think is more striking this or um, the one they had in the films, because that's at the studio tour. And I just remember that was one of the most striking set pieces. Um, it's huge. Yeah, it's it's huge. And the fact that it's, it's like crushing um, all the people is just, it's, it's chilling. It's absolutely chilling when you get up close to it. Mm-hmm. It is. So then they um, they move a little bit more into the ministry, and um, Ron, who is Red Cattermole at the moment, gets yelled at by Yaxley um, to fix his office. Um, I think there's something like it's raining, um, the weather is bad. You know what a what a struggle. <laughs> um, but <laughs> we find out that uh, Yaxley is about to question the real Cattermole's wife about her blood status. So this puts Ron in a pretty tough situation. Like he thought he was just being disguised as someone would be able to frolic around the ministry and find out information. But all of a sudden he's in a really tough situation because he actually pretty much implies that if you don't fix my office, then the chances of your wife getting um, a good verdict are going to be even slimmer. So sucks for Ron. I feel like that is probably something they didn't consider. Yep. Is the families of the people that they were potentially, um, you know, going to take over. And I mean, do they wear wedding wedding rings in the, in the wizarding world? I think so. I honestly don't know. Yeah, I I think so so because I think that's how he figures out that Lupin and Tonks got married is she like shows him a ring. Oh, right. She wait. That's right. I remember it says she waggles the diamond or something. Right. Okay. Well, well, Maybe a little better research would have yeah. stopped this situation from being. But I guess it does put pressure on Ron to not screw it up. I think this, too, is um, it's one of the consequences of Harry's almost rash decision to go today. Um, is that they don't know anything about these people, so they don't know that this would have been happening today and this could be a problem. Whereas maybe if they had planned a little bit more, they, they could have figured out who they were and... Um, found out that Catamaran's wife was a muggle-born. And- but how would they have found that out? They don't have any real connection to the outside world. Mm-hmm. And they were playing for four weeks. So yeah. I think that's just maybe an element they did it did slip in their minds. And I don't know if they would have had a good way of solving it. But they are endangering these people's families in this Definitely. type of ministry. Mm-hmm. Um. But Hermione gives Ron um, a couple of suggestions um, of what he can do to fix the weather issue. Um, you know, she, I think she suggests impervious or um, a couple of other things. But Ron doesn't. I mean, the suggestions she gives him don't sound very complicated. But Ron does not sound confident. It's like he's. I don't remember what the text says, but something like he's trying to like make notes of all of them to yeah, sort of repeat. <laughs> yeah, it. searching his pockets desperately for a quill. Yeah, yeah. and. It's just like, well, I don't, it's, Ron is always put in these situations where he can't deal with the magic in an effective way. And here he gets a, you know, he's having to go off on his own to solve someone's problem that could, uh, you know, affect this person's wife's life. 
um, and he's not ready. Which is funny because Ron, I think in general, when it comes down to it, is pretty good under pressure. But I think when something springs up that surprises him, it completely throws off all of his confidence. Yeah. And he just kind of becomes useless. Mm. <laughs> you know? He's a planner. I guess so, in a way. Yeah. But when he's dueling, he seems pretty... Um, he's able to handle it pretty well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Kind of like in a real duel. Mm-hmm. Um, but Hermione nudges Ron off of the floor um, to go take care of Yaxley's office. And then the doors close. And then as the do- as the lift starts to move, Hermione tells Harry she should have gone with Ron to help. But they're obviously all still on the move. Um, and then they hit level one. Ron has gotten off at level two, I believe. And um, level one is Minister of Magic and support staff. And... Um, She's probably not going anywhere because the, t- the chapter ends with this um, this text. Four people stood before them, two of them in deep conversation, a long-haired wizard wearing magnificent robes of black and gold, and a squat, toad-like witch wearing a velvet bow in, in her short hair and clutching a clipboard to her chest. Didn't take long for them to find Umbridge. No, that's quite the coincidence. Yeah. Quite the coincidence. I think it's, it's interesting because this is the second time that... Uh that Umbridge has been referred to. She's notorious enough that they don't even have to say who she is. Uh, Joe just kind of describes her and we're all like, there she is. And everyone kind of freaks out, you know, that it's the toad like thing. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Cause the previous because... chapter ended with similar yeah. language, right? Describing yeah. her and not mm-hmm. naming her. Yep. Exactly. And that's how a chapter ends. Um, Harry and Hermione are staring at this group of people, and I'm pretty sure we find out that the other person is Pius Thickness that she's talking to. Um, I could be wrong, but I think that's right. I believe so. Yeah. I believe so. All right. Now it's time for our podcast question of the week for this week. And for this, we're kind of talking about uh, what happened at the beginning of this chapter um, and the news that Harry brings back with him. So at the beginning, we learned that Snape has been made Hogwarts headmaster, Ron comments on this, saying, The other teachers won't stand for this. McGonagall and Flitwick and Sprout all know the truth. They know how Dumbledore died. They won't accept Snape as headmaster. Uh, That's on page 186 of the UK paperback. Harry, however, thinks that the other heads of house would accept the decision and stay at the school in order to protect the students. So how did McGonagall, Flitwick, Sprout, and the rest of the teachers react to this decision? And what exactly are they doing to protect their students? What was the transition to Snape's appointment like, considering the last time he was at Hogwarts, he was running away? So head on over to alohamora.mugnet.com and let us know what you think in the comments. And just as we wrap up here, we want to thank you, Dana, again, so much for joining us. We hope you had a wonderful time. I did. I did. It was great. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Thank you for joining us. And if you want to be on the show like Dana... Go to our Be On The Show page at alohomara.mugglenut.com. If you've got a basic set of headphones with a microphone, you are all set. You don't need any fancy equipment. And while you're there, make sure you download a ringtone for free. And in the meantime, if you just want to keep in touch with us, you can find us on Twitter at alohomoramn, facebook.com slash openthedumbledore, on Tumblr at Podcast. Our Instagram is alohomoramn. Our phone number, 206-GO-ALBUS, that's 206-462-5287, or you can send us an audio boom like you heard on the show earlier today. It's free, all you need is an internet connection and a microphone, 
Head over to alohamora.mugglenet.com, click the little green button in the right-hand menu, record a message, keep it under 60 seconds, and you just might hear yourself on the show. And also, um, we will be coming soon to Google Play. They just introduced podcasts in their um, their set of audio, I suppose. So look for that. We'll alert you and let you know when that is available. Also, make sure to check out our store that has a lot of great products that includes house shirts and other products with things like Desk Pig, Mandrake, Liberation Front, Minerva is My Home Girl, and so much more. And our smartphone app. So big change coming to this, guys. Um, our hosting service, now we, our app is now free. So the hosting service changed how things worked, and we are now under an app called the Podcast Source. So you can go and download that, and you can get um, some pretty cool things. We're working on some other solutions for those of you who purchased and paid for the app in general. But the app, as usual, includes things like transcripts, bloopers, alternate endings, host vlogs, and more. So definitely go check it out, and now you can download it for free. So yay. All right, that's going to do it for this week's episode of Alohomora. I'm Caleb Graves. I'm Allison Singer. And I'm Kat Miller. Thank you for listening to episode 162 of Alohomora. Open the Dumbledore. Why the stupid Death Eaters thought they were actually going to get on the Hogwarts Express? Yeah, um, <laughs> I mean for real. <laughs> I just love that, and they're they're like more people than normal. We're outside. Twelve oh, grandma, grandma, yeah. The the line so dumb. This is a side note, but the line that I laughed at there was the Londoners looking back, wondering why people would be dressed in cloaks in this heat, which was probably like eighty degrees. <laughs> yeah. well, that's a lot for London. I know, I know. It was just it just made me laugh.